Today's reading is uh, Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. morning. It's good to be back in East Belfast. Had to get my passport out this morning to cross the lagging. No, that's a joke. Um, This is, I think, I I think um, personally, looking back over this year, it's been a pretty big year. We had a baby, we moved house, and we launched a church plant. So that's a that's a pretty big year, right? Um, You probably shouldn't do all three of those in one year, but we did, and here we are. But as a church, we got so much to be thankful for, don't we? Um, I, I, I want to start by just giving you, uh, giving you a quick update on where we're at in, in South. Uh, we, have, we gather about 50 people on a Sunday. Many of them you wouldn't recognize, um, which is amazing. Um, that's what we want. We want to be pe- reaching people in that neighborhood, around the Omer Road and, and around uh, Ravenhill Road and the Lisbon Road and everywhere in South Belfast, and we're, and we're doing that slowly but surely. Um, the Lord has granted us opportunities to, to meet neighbors and, and people who live around, around there. And, and I, I got to be honest, like, apart from the neighbors that actually are my neighbors where I live, like, I haven't been doing most of that. Other people in the church have been doing that, which is amazing. Like, it, it feels like we are actually on mission in that neighborhood, and it's class. Um, we have three missional communities. We expect that to grow four within the next few months, because um, even though I moved house you know, there's only still so many people you can fit in a house. Um, so keep praying for us. Um, we are one church, right? Not in the sense that we're, yes, in the sense that we're all the body of Christ, but we are village church. We've got these two uh, interdependent congregations, and, and so it's great when we get to be back together. My hunch is that the next time we do this, um, it won't be Christmas week, and we'll probably have to look to maybe a bigger venue or something to do that, because both these congregations are growing. So let's, let's be thankful and praise God for that. Um, we're starting a new series today. Okay, cool. Good to see you're all enthusiastic and on board with that. Uh, no, that was a pregnant pause. We're starting a new series today. Uh, new year, uh, new series. Um, we're start. We're going to be looking uh, at the book of Psalms, but particularly within that, these these Psalms called the Songs of Ascent. Hands up, quick straw poll. Who's heard of the Songs of Ascent? Okay, a number of you. That's good. That's good. Um, if you haven't heard of these, I want to start by, because it's me and I can't let one uh, public speaking event go past without talking about space, uh, I was thinking about why, uh, why we would study these songs of ascent and how to best describe them. So let me take you back 50 years, 50 years ago on Christmas week, um, to a time when the world was, the world was really kind of gathered, looking to, to probably one of the most uh, at that time, one of the most uh, important scientific achievements that, that we'd ever achieved, we, I say we, I wasn't even born, but in nine, December 1968 was the launch of, of the Apollo 8 mission. Um, and and the, the United States had made this uh, commitment to, to land men on the moon by the end of the 60s. That was their, that was their, their goal, that was their aim. 
Uh, and in, in, it was getting towards the end of the decade. In 1960s, they, they hadn't really even reached the moon. So Apollo 8, they had gone through Apollo 1 through 7, all kinds of uh, successes and failures and tragedy and people leaders in their lives. And then on Christmas Eve, 1968, three men in a tiny capsule, uh, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, Jim Lovell, best pilot that ever lived, and uh, Bill Anders, orbited the moon. And on Christmas Eve, as they came around the dark side of the moon, they saw something that nobody had ever seen before. They saw the earth rising above the horizon of the moon, and they took this photograph that we have on the screen. Anyone seen this before? So this is called Earthrise, and this is what they saw out the window of their, and actually they almost missed it. Um, they had only black and white film in the camera, and so you, if you listen to the radio, uh, the radio uh, recordings, um, you can hear them saying, uh, grab some, Jim, get some, get some color film, and he like, grabs a color capsule and smashes it in the, uh, the camera and takes this picture. Now, that was such an important image because it was the first full color image of the earth. And you have to remember that back then in the 60s, the world was, was, was messed up, arguably more so than it is now. So it was the height of the, the Vietnam War. People were dying needlessly. It was, uh, it, there was tensions between the East and the West. There was famine and starvation all over Africa. It, the, the, the shadow of the Second World War was still there. And then this image came back to Earth. One of the most reproduced images of all time. Time magazine... Uh, puts it at number eight in the top 100 most influential photographs of all time. And the reason why it was so poignant was because in this image, you can see every, the home of every human being that has ever lived and died. Every single human being in history in that one photo. And it's incredible. And, 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 and at that point, we learned our fragility. We learned our, our loneliness. We learned, uh, how, we, we, we learned how, how fragile we are, just this tiny globe, how unspectacular but yet so spectacular the earth really is and it was this moment when the earth was gathered together unified saw this image being beamed back on Christmas Eve hearing those those astronauts reading from Genesis 1 that, that, that God created the earth and saw that it was good I don't know if you've ever experienced other moments like that in life where, where human beings are unified around something right so I was trying to think about it I, um, I remember going to Old Trafford, uh, seeing United play, and you have, you know, tens of thousands of, of football fans singing the same song, singing the same chant for the same goal, for the same reason. Or if you've ever been to a concert, like a big concert in an arena, even in the Odyssey, like 10, 12,000 people all singing the same song. It makes the, makes the hairs on the back of your, your neck stand up, doesn't it? It makes your the hairs on your arms stand up. Human beings all uh, united in, in one purpose, with one common goal with one kind of emotion. And this is what these songs of ascent are like. It's this group of 15 psalms in the book of Psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And they were, they were, they were made as pilgrim psalms. They were, made, uh, at, they, they were sung as the people of Israel would turn to Jerusalem. They would sing these songs together, all singing together as they walked along the road, as they, Jerusalem's on a hill and as they ascended the hill. They would sing these songs, the hairs on their arms and the backs of their necks standing up. We're here to worship God. We're, we're doing what the law tells us. The law told them they had to return to the dwelling place of the Lord uh, three times a year for these festivals. And they were there together with one purpose doing this. They were saying, we're setting out in this journey towards God himself. They had these three festivals. They had Pesach, which is the Passover. You remember what the Passover is? It's the time when, when God rescued 
Israel from Egypt, rescued them out of slavery. And so as they sung these songs to go back for Passover, they were reminded that God saves. And then there was Shavuot, or, the, or, the, or Pentecost, we know it in Greek, or the, the Festival of Weeks is its English name. And that celebrates the giving of the law when, when Israel received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And so as they sung these songs and were going back to worship the Lord, they were reminded that, that God reigns, that he's their ruler, that he's their king, that God reigns, he saves and he reigns. And then the, finally there was Sukkot, or, or, the, or, or the, the, the Festival of Tabernacles, the Festival of Booths, when they would all make little, little huts and little tents and little shelters and sit in there. And that represented, that was a reminder of, of the end of the harvest, a reminder that, that God provides. God saves and God reigns and God provides. And as they sung these songs together, as they climbed literally what is called the hill of the Lord, they would sing these songs together, together with one purpose. And you can imagine this, this host of people pilgrimaging along the way and, and having that emotion, that feeling of all being together for one purpose. And so this is why we're doing this, this we're looking at these psalms at the start of the year. Because even for the people of Israel, yes, it was a physical pilgrimage, but it was also a spiritual one. It was a, it was a journey. One, one teacher says it this way. He says, the Psalms of Ascent are a journey from a long way away to the very heart of God. And that's what we want as we step out into this new year together, all of us, on our pilgrimage. We're not going to, we're not going to Jerusalem. We're journeying towards the eternal Jerusalem. We're journeying towards Zion, Right? And as we step out in this pilgrimage, we're going to sing these songs together. We're going to look to God as our guide and our provider and our king. We're going to remember that he saves and he, 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 um, he provides and he reigns. So let me pray for us um, and ask God's help as we open up Psalm 121 this morning uh, before we get started. Uh, Father, we need your help uh, as we read your word and open your word. We trust it. These words are alive and are speaking to us. We trust that you, you have uh, something you want to say to us this morning. Uh, but yet, Lord, we're sinful and we try to read our own meanings into these texts and in these words. Help us not to do that this morning, Lord. Help us to just clearly hear what you have to say for us as your people. As your people set out on this pilgrimage into this new year, Lord, we just pray that you would speak clearly to us this morning. We need you as we just sang. We need you, Lord. We need you every hour. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I want to start by asking you a question. Everyone's like, oh my goodness, I thought you'd already started. Um, <laughs> nope. Buckle up, guys. <laughs> Hold elders back. Um, have you ever found yourself at a time when you're trying to do something, you're trying your best, um, you're working towards a goal, you're working towards an achievement, you're working your hardest, you feel like you're putting every ounce of your being into it, and you get to the point you're just like, I'm stuck. Like, I need help. Have you ever, can you remember times like that in your life? Um, I, I, love, I love stories and history and uh, stories of people achieving extraordinary things. Um, and history's full of people like that who do extraordinary things. Uh, just this week, I was listening to a podcast um, with Grant Thomas, uh, Welshman, who won the Tour de France this year. And you're like, on the surface, you think, well, that's just one guy on a bike. And he's cycled up all, all these mountains in France. And he's done it quicker than anyone else. But when you listen to the podcast, and, and he talks about, it's a podcast with him and his wife. It's really, really good. And the amount of help that he had along the way, even the fact that his, you know, he, he's able to talk to his wife about having a sore bum from being on the saddle. 
uh, or, or he has doctors and nutritionists. He has um, uh, directors of sport. He has, uh, he has uh, physios. He has um, coaches. He has teammates around him. It wasn't, like, it wasn't just him achieving this one extraordinary goal. It was a whole team of people. That's why the podcast is called How We Won the Tour. Not how I won the tour, how we won the tour. And I think that often we, we, we look at people and we say, well, he's a self-made man or she's a self-made woman. And usually it's a myth, right? Even someone like, even someone like I don't know if I'm allowed to say this name in public anymore, but even someone like Donald Trump who, who would say that he's a self-made man, like he was only given a small loan of a couple of million by his dad or something. You know what I mean? Um, I, I, think that, I think that often we look at self-made people and we say, wow, they've done that on their own. But most cases, it's a myth. Uh, Psalm 121 is this cry for help. It's this recognizing by the author that he needs help. It's intended to give us the resources that we need uh, to find help when, when, we, when we realize that we need help. So in, in some sense, or in one sense, it's called the traveler's psalm. And so traditionally, it's prayed over people who are going long journeys. So we've already seen people going to Jerusalem. I've talked about the parallel of us stepping out into the new year going on a journey, and it's prayed over these people to show them where to find help, and so they might avoid pitfalls along their journey. But what I've just mentioned is probably the biggest pitfall that we all fall into in our spiritual journey, isn't it? We, we, we think that we don't need help. We think that we can do it on our own, right? I can, I can be a good Christian. Oh, I can be a good Christian. I can uh, love the poor and serve my neighbors. I can do that all on my own strength. Oh, that's, that, that sin that I keep struggling with, I can get rid of that on my own. I'm just going to you know, download the right software, uh, and I'm going to have the right accountability partners. You know, I, can, I can beat this on my own. Maybe you've even heard um, Benjamin Franklin's famous quote, God helps, God helps those who help themselves. You heard that? My dad used to say, God helps those that help themselves, but God help those who are caught helping help themselves. No, yeah, you got, God helps those who help themselves, but God help those who are caught helping themselves. That's what you say. But this was taught to me like it was a good thing, right? You, you know, uh, do your best and God will supply the rest. But that's not the gospel, is it? That's not the gospel at all. This is actually opposite to the gospel. The truth is God doesn't help those that help themselves. God helps the helpless, God helps us because we're helpless and we recognize our need of him and we turn to him. And this is our first lesson this morning that I want to see from Sam, from, the, from Psalm 121, that we need to recognize that we need help. Look at verse one. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to be dipping in. We're, we're going to be just working our way through this Psalm this morning. He says, I lift, my eyes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? The first thing he does is he, he lifts his eyes up. He takes on this posture of spiritual poverty. He's like, I, I need more than I have within me. I, I need something outside of myself. I don't have the personal resources that, that I need for this journey. Whatever it is he's going through, we don't know, we're not told. He recognizes that he needs the Lord's help. This psalm is about, essentially about saying, Lord, I need you. I'm empty. I have nothing on my own. And, and I want to say to you that, that this is the, the posture that we need to take on as, as we, every day, but especially as we start thinking about the new year ahead, we, all, we start taking stock of what's gone past and what's coming up. We need to take on this posture of spiritual poverty. Sometimes when we read the Psalms, we, we just think of them as nice devotionals, 
don't we? Oh yeah, I need a, I need a bit of uh, encouragement. So let me turn to the Psalms here and see if I can find something that'll, that'll give me a lift. But the truth is, they're God's word. It's, it's God's inspired word. God's speaking to us. And so, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily have um, a culture of, of education through poetry and poetry conveying, uh, I mean, it still does, but not in a wider sense. Poetry isn't used as a, as a, a common means of, of transferring grand ideas and, and educating people. But back, in the, back in, in the ancient Israel days, this is what it was. The people learned their theology through singing these songs together. This is why we sing. This, you know, John and Tom, they don't, they don't just pick random worship songs to sing. They, 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 they choose carefully the words that are going to convey our theological convictions. And without knowing it, you all sing your theology into yourself and to each other. We declare the gospel through the songs we sing. And this is what the Psalms are about. And this is why we can confidently pray these Psalms and sing these Psalms and join with the Psalmist and say, I need help. I'm going to lift up my eyes. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 3. Later on in the year, we're going to get to, um, we're going to, get to studying the, um, what are we going to study? The Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> oh my goodness. I should know that. I'm going to teach it. Uh, we're going to get to the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what Jesus said right at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, blessed are those who recognize their need for God. This is like the late Eugene Peterson put it this way in the message. He says, blessed are those Blessed are those who recognize their need for God. Isn't that beautiful? Blessed are those. This is who the kingdom of God is for. This is who the kingdom of God belongs to. The people that recognize that they have nothing to bring to the table. Like us. We, we don't bring anything except our brokenness and our, our weakness. And our stubbornness. And our sinfulness. This is the way of the gospel. The way to receive the kingdom of God is to, is to, to be broken and realize you have nothing to offer. See, for us as followers of Jesus, we can be like the psalmist. Followers of Jesus have a posture of spiritual poverty. Followers of Jesus have a posture of spiritual poverty. We have nothing to offer, but yet in him we have everything. Outside of him we have nothing. What does Paul say? He says that we were dead in our sins, but he has made us alive. We have absolutely nothing except our poverty, and he gives us everything. Time and time again, we see Jesus teaching this way, doesn't he? He says things like, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. We have nothing and he gives us everything. This is even the example of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Just a couple of weeks ago, our carol service, we're talking about the fullness of, the fullness of God in tiny, helpless babe. This is what the kingdom of God is like. The fullness of God, he becomes the most vulnerable creature on earth that would literally, he would literally have died if his mother hadn't sustained him. Have you ever heard of the, uh, you, I was gonna say, have you ever heard of this? Like it's the 60s, but you've obviously heard of booting up a computer, right? You boot up a computer. You've all heard of that, right? Have you ever heard of that? Uh, but do you know where that comes from? That comes from this idea of, I mean, there's 
people in this room will tell me I'm wrong, I think. Uh, I know that Ian Tool is sitting right there, but this is my understanding of it, is that uh, it comes from this idea of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Is that right? Yes. Nerd points. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Now, the thing that's interesting about that is you literally can't do it. You literally can't. It's not like I can, I don't have bootstraps, but I can't pull my boots and lift myself up. But this is what a computer does. But the lesson here is that, that, that when it comes to your soul, you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. There's no digging yourself out of the hole that you're in. We turn to Jesus and we say, I have nothing. I need you. We take on this posture of of spiritual poverty. And this is what we see him doing here. But not only that, we need to look for help in the right place as well. This is why he asks the question. He says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? Where, Where is my help coming from? Now, this idea of looking at the hills, different scholars have different ideas of, of, of what that means exactly. Um, I think they all lead to the same conclusion anyway. So some will say that maybe uh, he's thinking of the hills surrounding Jerusalem, which would make sense if these pilgrims are pilgrimaging to Jerusalem and they're singing these songs. The hills around Jerusalem representing godliness as places of worship and all that kind of stuff. Or, or, or maybe it's this battle imagery, like a soldier He's looking to the hills for, for the cavalry reinforcements to come over and save them. You remember like in Lord of the Rings whenever Gandalf comes over down the hill and kills all the orcs? Or maybe there's a, a more sinister aspect to it as well where, where the, the hills where they would, the, the, the Canaanites and pagans would worship their, their pagan gods. And maybe he's even thinking, oh, could I just go there and get the help I need? Maybe, maybe Baal or some other god is going to help me. But, but whatever one of those you choose, I think they're all fine. It still has the same conclusion. The conclusion is this. Very quickly, as in after, ask, after asking one question, he realizes that he has to look beyond the hills. He has to look beyond the hills. He realizes there's no help in the hills. And, and that let me wonder. I wonder what, what hills you look to whenever you need help. What hills are you dependent on whenever you're in trouble? Whenever you need sustenance or whenever you need encouragement, whenever you need lifted out of whatever hole you find yourself in. Your friends, your family, your marriage, your your relationships, are they the ones that are going to ultimately get you through? I think for most of us, if we're honest in this church, we look to job security, our careers, and we go, yes, well, that's, that's my hope. If that was gone, I don't know what I would do. Maybe some of us look... More for look to things like pornography or gambling or 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 or, or dependence on some other substances, and we go these things. Ah, oh, I'll just get me through. I'll just get me through the day. That's going to curb my loneliness. That's going to deal with with the, the stresses and the trouble that I'm in. And maybe it's for most of us. Maybe it's just social media, just distraction. Let's, I'll just I'll just get on Twitter and, and Facebook and. You know, that thing, that'll be okay. That'll get me through. What hills do we look to? And if we look to these things for help very quickly, we're going to realize that there is no help in these hills, aren't we? That's why he looks to the Lord. Our second lesson this morning is that we need to recognize that help comes from the Lord. Verse 2, my help comes from the Lord, from Yahweh from the ancient God of Israel. This is what he's saying. From the creator of heaven and earth, my help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. 
There's something interesting going on here in the way he's written this, right? There's this contrast. He makes this contrast. First, he says, I left my eyes up to the hills. And then he says, my help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and earth. He's drawn a contrast between creation and the creator. Because why would you look to the hills for help when you can look to the God who made the hills for help? <laughs> why do we look to all these like created things that are going to get us through when actually we, can, we have access through Jesus to the one who made all these created things? He's our ultimate hope. All these temporary things that aren't going to last. Even all the truths that we put into ourselves. All the self-help stuff. All the, 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 the wellness and well-being stuff that we feed ourselves. I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with those things if they're done in conjunction with the gospel. What I'm saying is if that, those things are the source of your hope, they're going to let you down. They're going to pass away. They're going to, they're going to fail. Even the most healthy and happy marriage is going to end at some point because one of you is going to die, right? Wow, it's cheerful for Christmas week. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, um, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. He's talking, about, he's talking to his disciples about the end times. He's talking about whenever everything they can see around them and all the things in the world are, are gonna be no more. But what remains is his words. My words will not pass away. So we don't look to creation to sustain us. Sure, creation's great and it's wonderful and it can give us inspiration and it can point us to the one who made it. But the hope isn't in creation itself. You read the end of the Bible the mountains are going to crumble into the seas. As you even see that in the Psalms. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is fleeting. This is why Peter, in, uh, it's the time in the sermon when I say this is my favorite verse in the Bible, because I say that every week. Uh, this one really is up there. Uh, Peter uh, responds to, to Jesus. Jesus is teaching these really difficult things about what it means to follow him. And all his followers leave him and start walking away, except the 12. And Jesus turns around to them and says, are you, are you guys not going to leave too? And Jesus says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter recognized that in Jesus. Eternal life. Everything else is, everything else is silly to hang your hopes on everything else. It's going to pass away. So let me ask you this. As we do, if I can rinse this metaphor one more time, as we do set off into this journey, into this new year, if you like, what are you putting your hopes in? Where's your help going to come from? Is it temporary things? Is it, this is the year I'm finally going to get that promotion? Or this is the year that, that me and him are definitely going to get married? Or, or this is the year that, that you, know, you know, she's definitely going to get pregnant? What are you putting your hopes in? Is it these temporary things that ultimately have no ground, ultimately don't last? Or are you putting your hope in the words of eternal life? Are you putting your hope in Jesus? But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He goes on to, to, to kind of declare just who this God is that he's trusting in. This is our next lesson. We need to recognize who the Lord is. Recognize who the Lord is. Look at verses three and four with me. He says this. 
He will, not, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. It's interesting, there's this like shift in tone here. You find this often in the Psalms where, where the psalmist, especially in David, I love how David does this. Uh, he'll, he'll start off by, by looking into himself and saying, I, I lift my high, eyes up to, to the hills. Where does my help come from? And then he changes this third person. He starts saying things like, he will not let your foot, your foot be moved. He who keeps you. So what's he doing? I think he's starting preaching, isn't he? He's like, I'm in this situation. There's no help in these hills, but you know where there is help. There's help in the Lord. And he's preaching to himself. And as the, the people, as the people of Israel were singing these hymns, he was preaching to them as well. He's reminding himself of who God is. See, sometimes, um, sometimes if someone's going through a trial and they need help, we'll just be like, just trust God more. But the truth is that that, that can be such an abstract thing. We need to know who God is if we're going to trust him, right? And how do we know who God is? It's the, it's, the, it's the kid's answer. It's Jesus. The way that we remind ourselves who God is is we look to Jesus. So in every one of our circumstances, we remind ourselves of the nature of God, of who he is and what he has done by looking to Jesus, This is what Jesus says in John chapter 9. He says, anyone who has seen me, anyone who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. This is why we celebrate that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became a human being and and moved into the neighborhood. Through Jesus, John tells us that the glory of the Father is revealed. And he showed us ultimately what God is like when he died on the cross, didn't he? If you want to know what God is like, then look to the cross of Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, then look to the cross because it's on the cross that the nature of God is ultimately revealed. That's why when, when, um, when things come up in our lives and every day in circumstances, we ask ourselves this one question. How do I apply the gospel to this? How does the gospel of Jesus redeem this situation? Someone look at the sick. What does the gospel say to that? The gospel says that his eternal hope is secure. So what has he got the fierce on cancerous cells? Do you know what I mean? How does the Lord redeem this situation through the gospel? We remind ourselves who God is. We say, Lord, I'm spiritually empty. I'm looking to you for help. And now I'm going to remember who you are. Um, when it, over in South, one of the days we were looking at hope in Advent, we were talking about this idea of, of looking back to look forward. We look to the cross so we can move forward in life. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of all Scripture, including this psalm. And so uh, we, that's why we, we preach the gospel. He is the fulfillment of this. He is the fulfillment of help. This is why we have uh, missional communities as Jesus, or as Jesus. Oh, I called you Jesus. Wow. That's a step up. <laughs> I mean, you're good, but you're not that good. This is why we have missional communities, Lucas said. Why we have cores when we get into small groups. And we, what do we do? We preach the gospel to one another. I'm really struggling with this, guys. Okay, well, here's what the gospel says about that. Here's what God's word says about that. Here's how you're going to get through that. But the truth is, 
Maybe you'll agree with me on this one. Most of the times, I'm better at preaching the gospel to other people than I am to myself. Anyone feel that? You're, you're, whenever your friend comes around and be like, oh, man, I'm really struggling, you're like, just get the Bible out. I know exactly what to say. But when it comes to yourself, you're like, you're silent. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Welsh, Welsh preacher, he says this when he's talking about uh, spiritual depression. He says this, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Oh, See, the most important person you can speak the gospel to is yourself. We, most of us need to do that more. Wake up in the morning. All right, I'm a redeemed child of God. Come at me, world. What are you going to do? Yeah? When, when it's this recurring sin that I keep falling into, when I keep doing that thing that, as Paul says, I, I, I do what I don't want to do, and what I do want to do, I don't do. When, I do. when I keep falling into this sin over and over and over again, apply the gospel. Jesus' death has broken the curse of sin, so you don't need to give in a temptation. When it's grief or sickness, we apply the gospel. Jesus' death has ultimately defeated death, and one day sickness and death will be done away with completely. When it's addiction, apply the gospel. When we're in Jesus, we have freedom. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. When it's money worries, most of us, I'd say, even those of us that are well off, worry about money. We apply the gospel. When we're in Jesus, our treasures in heaven where, where no uh, moth or rust can destroy. I don't, know if, I don't know if you've ever felt desperate. Maybe over the course of the last year you have. I know this guy has because he told me the other day. But I guarantee you this, at some point in the next coming year, you will feel desperate. We don't know what lies around the corner, but remember this. God is the God who will not let a single person of his people fall. Right? Let me expand on that. You might feel it you're alone. You might feel I'm the only person who's suffering this way. Everyone in the rest of the church tells me they're doing fine. Everyone's fine. We're all fine. But you're like, oh, how come I'm the only one that's struggling just to keep my head above the water? Well, the truth is, God sees you. He knows. And not only does he know, he gave his blood for you, for his people. Why? So that you and none of his people can ever be snatched out of his hand. That's what the Bible tells us. You cannot be plucked out of his hand. That's why it's the only way to travel through life is trusting God. Is looking beyond the hills. Is looking beyond anything that the world can offer us. And look to the one who created and sustains it all. It's the only thing that makes sense when you think about it, isn't it? And so we need to recognize we need help. We need to recognize that help comes from the Lord. We need to recognize who the Lord is. And then our fourth and final lesson is this. We need to recognize how the Lord helps. And I think this psalm tells us pretty clearly. Firstly, he is our keeper. As you read that psalm, you might have heard, or noticed this word keep coming up over and over again. Five times it's used. Verse three, he says, he who keeps you will not slumber. Verse four, he who keeps Israel. Verse five, the Lord is your keeper. Verse seven, the Lord will keep you from all evil and he will keep your life. Verse eight, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. Over and over again, keep, keep, keep. The Lord is your keeper. Now, what we need to remember is, 
that it's great that we have like English Bibles, isn't it? That we can all take this home, we can all read it, and we can all understand it. We can understand the words. But the Bible wasn't written in English. The Old Testament was written in a language called ancient Hebrew. And the word that's used here for keep in Hebrew has this kind of wider meaning than our word keep. When we think of keep, we mean uh, we can probably mean a couple of different things. But in Hebrew, what that means, it means to, uh, to keep, it means to watch over, it means to guard, to be like a guardian. And, and one of my, uh, uh, I love this definition, to attend to carefully. Oh, the Lord attends to you carefully. Isn't that amazing? Oh, the Lord attends to you carefully. He's watching over you. This is how the Lord helps us. He's our guardian. He watches over us. Did anyone watch Jurassic Park over the holidays? Anyone watch Jurassic Park? I am disappointed in you all. That's like one of the main, that and Indiana Jones, I feel like, like kind of really holiday movies. Classic like rainy day movies. Rainy day movie. Well, you might remember in Jurassic Park, it came out in 1995 or something, so I don't care if I give you a spoiler. Uh, no one, uh, they do, someone dies, I guess. They get off the island. Uh, they, so this point where the kids, the two kids are in the tree, it's after the T-Rex has like, smashed up the Jeep, and they're in the tree, and they're there with, with um, you know, what do you call the Aussie guy? Dr. Grant, Alan Grant, I can't remember the actor's name, but they're in the tree, and the dinosaurs are there, and then the kids are starting to get really sleepy, and he's like, why don't you go to sleep? And, and they say, well, you stay awake. And he's like, you guys go to sleep. I'm going to stay awake, and I'm going to watch over you. And so if the dinosaurs come back, I can protect you. This is what the Lord does for you. He says, you can rest. You can sleep because, because I'm not going to sleep. That's what he says in, ver, in, in verse 3. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We can apply this, Israel, we can, we can apply that in Jesus to the church, to the people of God. Behold, he who keeps the people of God will neither slumber nor sleep. He's our guardian. We don't have a God who falls asleep in the job. Heh, that's pretty cool. And for those of us who are Christians this morning, this psalm has a slightly deeper meaning. It means that, it means that our future is secure. It means that, that our eternal hope is secure. It means that we are in Jesus. It means that no matter what lies down the road in 2019, that we can say, it is well with my soul. So we, we don't have to stress about what's coming up tomorrow and next week and this year. We don't have to stress uh, about, about work and, and about money and, and about all these different things. Because our hope isn't in those things anyway. Our hope is in our eternal future hope. This is why Paul could say in Philippians 4, he says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Wow. He supplies every need of ours according to his riches. According to his riches. We've already seen that we, we, we've, we've already been raised from, from, from spiritual death to life. We've already been granted eternal life here and now. It's, gonna, it's a fullness of life that lasts forever. And so why should we fear what's coming our way? Why should we fear what lies around the corner? Remember that old hymn that says, uh, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Well, listen, church. I, I mean, I know that whatever, you can say I'm old-fashioned, whatever. But the truth is, we can 
face 2019 because Jesus lives. Second way that he provides help. He's our protector. Look at verses five to six. The Lord is your keeper. There's that word. He's our guardian. He watches over us. He attends to us carefully. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. The word shade used in, in Hebrew, that, 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 that can mean protection as well. It can literally mean shade. Like, you know, um, so what you might remember when we studied Jonah, uh, God caused the, the, the bush to grow up and, and gave Jonah shade from the sun. So it can literally mean shade from the sun, or it can mean protection. So we see that all over the Psalms. The Lord is our protector. Hide me in the shadow of your wings, Lord. You know, like the mother hen protects her chicks. Or Isaiah uses it in a protection sense. He, he says that, that you, the same word, a, a defense for the helpless. You're a shade for the helpless. But what he's talking about here is the Lord is our protector. And because, how do we know this? Well, it's interesting that he says, the Lord is a shade on your right hand. Now, that maybe doesn't make much sense to us, but if you're, uh, uh, if you're an ancient Israelite listening to this or singing this, you'll instantly pick up on what's going on here. So, it's this battle language again. What do you do when you're going into battle? On your left hand, you have your shield. And what's on your right hand is your sword. But that means that your, your right hand is vulnerable. Your right hand is vulnerable. Your, this side is, is, defend, is defended. But even if you want to protect this side of your body, your right hand's still out there. Your right hand is the vulnerable part of your body. Um, this is why at weddings, you might have noticed that at weddings, the, 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 the bridal, uh, sorry, the groom will stand at, at uh, yeah, the groom will stand at this side of the church and the bride comes up in. The bride goes on the groom's left hand because he protects her vulnerable side. This is traditionally why this happened. So he has, back in the, the day, he would have his sword, and now by protecting her right side, he can protect both of them with his sword. Isn't that beautiful? And this is what the Lord does for us. He protects our vulnerability. You see, we don't protect ourselves with our sword. He stands and protects our right hand. We don't protect ourselves. The Lord protects us. Isn't that cool? Every effort you can put into to protecting yourself, every, everything you're going to be, ah, I need to make sure that, I, that, I, that I'm safe and secure and that I've got enough money in the bank and all those kinds of things. The Lord says, I'm actually the one that protects you. I'm going to worry about those things for you. And interestingly as well, in verse 6, he says, the sun shall not strike you by day. Ancient Middle East, the sun could do a lot of damage. Especially if I was there, can you imagine? Be like, even redder than I am right now, just a crisp. I was in Las Vegas in the summer, man, it was touch and go for a while. Just like <laughs> emaciated, dehydrated. But it was a real danger that people couldn't be out in the sun all the t for a long time. They'd get heat stroke and sunstroke. And the Lord says, I'm going to protect you from that. And what about the moon? I'm going to protect you from the dangers of the night as well the bandits and the robbers. You don't have to worry about the day or the night. Basically what, God is, what the psalm is saying is that God has got all the bases of your life covered. Every area of your life. I've got it covered. The day and the night, you're going out and you're coming in. Every area of your life, I am your keeper. I am your protector. I am attending to you. And this should give us great encouragement. It should give us great hope. But for me, it started to, as I was reading this this week, it started to raise some questions. Because I think of, it's hard for me to think of protection uh, in some senses because 
Like, if we're honest, most of us have it pretty sweet, especially compared to uh, other um, more impoverished areas of the world. Most of us live pretty comfortably. You know, most of us don't have to worry about where our food, our next meal is going to come from. Most of us have a home to live in. Most of us live in, in relative, even in Northern Ireland now, like peace and, and safety. So what does this idea of God protecting us mean for us? Well, I would say that some Christians have taken this literally to mean that God will make you healthy and wealthy, that you'll, you'll never fall into any harm. But I would say that that's false, okay? I want to be really clear about that. Christians are never promised that they won't suffer. In fact, we're promised that we will suffer. So what's going on? Well, in Jesus, again, there's a deeper meaning for us. So in the ancient times, the people of God were a nation. They were the nation of Israel. And so God's redemptive history, if you like, God's history of him interacting with the world to save the world was played out in this arena of a nation. So they had real battles with other nations. They had real oppressors from other nations. They had a real physical sense, war, wars going on in that way. But for us, now the people of God is made up from people from all nations. It's spread across the entire world in Jesus. And so, yes, Christians still face physical oppression. Of course they do. But for all of us Christians, our battle is not with, with, with flesh and blood. This is what Paul teaches us in Ephesians 6. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, our struggle is with the powers of evil, the evil one. And he, listen, he wants you to slip and fall. We looked at this in Advent as well in South. You know, the coming of Jesus was essentially, essentially the, the end for, for, for Satan, right? He knew that. He knows he's defeated. And so he turns his attention to the church. He's like, I want to wreck things. I'm going to wreck things. I'm going to make sure as few people as possible enter into the kingdom, enter into the, 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 the gift that God has promised for his people. And so he wants you to feel, he wants you to fall, he wants you to give into that temptation, he wants you to fall into desperation whenever things get tough. That's what he wants, he wants you to be distracted. But this is where we come to our final point this morning. He's our keeper, he's our protector. The Lord is the defeater of evil. He's the defeater of evil. Listen to verse 7 and 8. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. When we think about our battle with evil, our struggle with sin, like we all feel it, don't we? Let's be honest. We all struggle. Even this morning I was just walking, uh, walking in here and I was just thinking, man, like that, that same thing again in my head. But this is our encouragement. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He's promised it, and so we can rely on it. But hold on a minute. All evil? Really? What about when bad things happen? What about when you're in a car accident? What about when your friend gets sick? What about when someone at work takes advantage of you so they can advance and you don't? What about when you lose your job? What about when you have an accident? What about all these things? What about when someone breaks into your house or you're mugged? Are you telling me I'm kept from all evil? 
We're near the end, but I want to I want to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer for a second. That incredible guy. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've never heard of him, you should definitely uh, Wikipedia that guy. Um, he was a pastor and a theologian in, in Germany during the, the Nazi Reich in the late 30s and early 40s uh, in Berlin and surrounding places. And during that whole time, uh, at the expense of his own life, he preached the gospel. He taught, uh, he taught people about Jesus. He protected Jews and, 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 and black people and people of ethnic minorities. He hid them. He taught people how to resist evil in the name of Jesus. He taught people how to do good in the face of evil. And after all of this, he was executed at the hands of the Nazis. 9th of April at dawn, 1945. Flossenburg concentration camp. He was hanged. And it was only two weeks before the Americans liberated that camp. So you could look at him, you could look at that and go, did God really keep him from all evil? God keep him from all evil, all that he suffered. Yes, I can look at that and I can confidently say that. Because the point is not that we are, are kept from evil affecting us. The point is not that we are kept from evil interfering with our lives and attacking us in various ways and various things. And we don't have time to go into all of those. You're still going to get sick. You're still going to lose your job. You, you, you might lose friends. In, in other countries, you, you, might be, you might be put in prison or beaten for the sake of Jesus. The point is you aren't protected from evil happening to us. The point is that we're kept from entering into evil, even in the midst of all of that. So when we're beat down and, and persecuted and, and we're sick and we're tired and we're lonely and we're at the end of our tether, we don't give in. We don't give in to temptation. Why? Because God is keeping us from it. This is why Paul says in, in 2 Thessalonians, he's talking about all the suffering that he's received at the hands of men, him and Sylvanus and, and Timothy. And this is what he says. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Listen, to be kept from evil means that we know and trust that there is a purpose in our suffering. No matter what's going on, because our faith is based on suffering, isn't it? Right? We're saved by a suffering Savior. One teacher puts it this way. How can Christians believe in the crucifixion of the Son of God if they do not believe that God has a plan for suffering? God has a plan for suffering. And we sometimes think about this all, all wrong. We get it all mixed up, right? We get it the wrong way around. We say that, well, God is supposed to protect me from the bad stuff. God's supposed to stop this stuff happening to me. But the truth is that the bad stuff is part of God's purposes. It's part of his plan. He's a plan for suffering. And so that's why when we recognize this, we're kept from evil. And we can say, like verse 3 says, he will not let my foot be moved. He's not going to let your foot be moved. No matter how bad it gets. No matter how much temptation you face, no matter how many friends you lose, no matter how many marriages fall apart, he will not let your foot be moved. Your eternal hope is secure in Jesus. You know why I know we won't be moved? Because God is immovable. He's immovable. And so how could we ever be moved? And this is why we go back to preaching the gospel in every situation, isn't it? This is why we go back there. Because, because of 
because of Jesus' sacrifice, because of his death and resurrection, because of his body broken and his blood spilled. The curse of sin has no grip on me. Ah, my wife, um, she's a huge fan of uh, Dr. Helen Roosevelt. I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of her, but I suggest you read any of her books. I can't even. And the things that she, the thing that she went through in the Congo, like unspeakable things. And the way that in the midst of those things, she talks about the nearness of Jesus. You need to read that. You need to be inspired by that. These are the heroes of the faith that I want to follow. Bonhoeffer, Helen Roosevelt, Jim Elliott, others, people sitting among us. I want to follow these people as we, as we step out in this journey into the new year. He'll just boldly declare that my foot will not be moved. We need to walk in the freedom that Christ has won for us through his death and resurrection. That's how we have access to this hope. That's how we have access to this protection. Remember that God has ultimately defeated evil. And listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, I I mean, that's great that you're here. I love it. Absolutely. I want to say that this is available to you too. You can get in on this. That's the good news. Anyone can get in on this. This is available to you too. Maybe you feel like you're tired of looking at the same old things for help and encouragement and support and, and everything just seems to be letting you down all the time. Just trust in the one who won't let you down. Trust in Jesus. He died for you. Loves you. He gave himself up for you. And then rose again and crushed evil forever. Ha! Amazing. So, I want to challenge us as a church didn't speak to the other guys about this, but I think it's pretty safe. <laughs> they're like, oh, they're, these guys are all nervous now. What's he going to do? I, I don't know. I feel like maybe we as a church could, could just resolve as we move into the new year. Maybe you're making New Year's resolutions. That's fine. That's good. Come back to me in February. Say here, Dan. Can we resolve this year as a church to depend less on ourselves and more on him? Can we resolve to do that together? Can that be our New Year's resolution? We're going to just depend less on this and more on this. And just daily say to the Lord, Lord, this morning I recognize I have nothing outside of you. Jesus, I'm empty. I'm messed up without you. But you've died for me. You've conquered the grave. You've beaten sin. And my foot will not be moved today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we worship an immovable God. Thank you that because of your sacrifice, Jesus, your death, your body broken and your blood spilled, that, that um, we don't have to give in to evil, that we don't have to give in to temptation, that you will protect us from all evil. Father, I pray that as we set off on our journey this new year, that you would protect us, that you would provide for us, that you would be our guide, that you would be our hope. Lord, help us to just stop putting our hope in the same old temporary things that keep letting us down. Father, help us resolve this year, every day, to depend less on ourselves and more on you. The source of the only true hope, the source of only true peace, the source of only true joy. And Father, whatever's coming this year, we don't know. 
Just looking back, we talked about all the things that we went through this year. We don't know what's coming, Lord, but you do as we put our trust in you. And no matter what comes around the corner, we're going to say, my hope is in you. You're where my help comes from. And we do it for the glory of Jesus and for his fame.